Welcome, everybody, to the first edition of Haggerty's Never Stop Driving podcast. Now, this is the pod for those who love cars and driving and are committed to keeping those precious things alive. Now, we're going to bring you the latest from the car world, the latest from Haggerty Media, and interviews with some super compelling people. Now, I'm your host, Larry Webster. I'm the editor-in-chief of Haggerty Media, and my co-host today is the guy with the golden keyboard, the man with the grit and or the insanity to spend seven years restoring a Lamborghini, and he's driven a Jeep on the sands of Normandy. This is Haggerty's editor-at-large, Aaron Robinson. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Eventually, you're going to run out of things to say about me. Never. Never. In about when 10 I get seconds. To the, when I get to best hair, yes, maybe. That'll be the end. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> not not in any contention for that prize. Especially yeah, how's everything out in California? I'm here in Michigan. It's windy today. We had rain yesterday, which we're mm-hmm. very excited about. We always get very excited when there's rain. Um, mm-hmm. There's... I hate you. Car galore stuff this weekend, as there is every weekend. There's cars and coffee and car I shows know. and people driving. And I just, last weekend, um, we stumbled upon a gigantic lowrider meeting down in San Pedro <gasps> on the beach. Oh. And <laughs> so a bunch of us guys all driving foreign weirdo cars. That all of a sudden, fun. we were surrounded by these uh, by these lowriders. And yeah. by, by the way, I should say, they're the nicest group of people ever. And, and, and they craftsmen. are down down yeah. there every weekend every single weekend with their families barbecuing and yeah. um, it's a very family oriented thing it's really cool super cool you know uh i talked about this before was the california repealed you know they used to ban cruising remember yeah yeah, yeah. and they recently re- repealed those laws which allowed these things to happen and you know to your point it's it's maybe it, it you know 40 50 years ago there was some criminal element to it but now it's it's yeah, low, low riders are family-oriented people. They're not the ones causing the problems. But the, 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 the kids causing the problems are the ones doing those street takeovers and, you yeah. know, hooning around, uh, doing donuts and, and packed intersections. And so that's that's really the, where the focus has shifted now. But but these guys are, you know, Aaron. they're out there during daylight hours, you know, barbecuing with their families. I mean, <laughs> so. It's super cool. Did, I mean, I love the... The creativity and the craftsmanship in those cars. Did you remind them that Haggerty and the Drivers Foundation honored the Gypsy Rose lowrider by making sure it was in the National Register for Historic Vehicles? I did not, but oh, they forgot. will be there. They'll be back there next Saturday and every Saturday thereafter. So I, okay, I'll bring take them a copy of the magazine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> walk up with the guys i'm from haggerty that'll <laughs> well i mean we love those i mean a lot of those are classic cars we love them they're customized and um you know part of what we're doing here it's brought to you by the haggerty drivers club and when you're a member of the drivers club which anybody can be you get six editions of this magazine that you and i work very diligently on and we love to produce and you know as i say we're painters who got to paint we take it very seriously and we get great response from it, but you also get uh, roadside assistance. So if your car breaks down, you get a flatbed tow for your classic, you get discounts, you get access to events, and you get full access to all the Haggerty valuation tools and historical data. So it's quite a deal. Go to Haggerty.com. Anybody can join. But, you know, this week, there's, I think, three topics we got to hit. And the first one, uh, you know, is the Hagger- is the uh, Tesla Cybertruck, which uh, our colleague Jason Camisa did a fantastic detailed review of it. I also want to talk about this innovative Texas high school and its auto service program and what they did and how to get kids interested in fixing cars, which is you and I both have experienced as a huge glut. And then we'll catch up on our project cars. But first, 
I got to believe that in California, there's some a million, well, there's a million orders for the Cybertruck. I imagine 968,000 are from California, <laughs> right? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I, I imagine the coasts are fighting over it. I'm not sure how much Middle America wants one, but um, yeah. yeah, that it's definitely uh, going to be the new status symbol. I mean, it's funny if you go back 30 years, you bought a Mercedes S-Class or you bought um, you know, a Fleetwood limo with one of those mm-hmm. you know, boomerang um, antennas on the trunk and that's that those were you know in films and anytime we saw one going to the studio oh that, that's a rich guy now it's he's driving around in this giant 6,000 pound stainless steel electric truck and who could have predicted that so yeah I mean um, I, I guess maybe I should back up the cyber truck I think do we think everybody knows what this thing is Aaron it's well known, I right? I think everybody knows what it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it's 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 an indication, and the fact that everybody knows what it is um, is an indicator of how desperate we are for something new in the auto. Oh industry. yeah, because <laughs> totally. design is so duplic- you know duplicative. If you line up yeah. the six new crossovers this year, all in white, I mean, everybody would struggle, myself included. I work in this business to pick out which you know who who made what. I mean. Because, you know, it's like, oh, the taillights are slightly different. And, oh, you know, he's got a bigger grill. Or, but outside of that, it's really difficult to tell the players apart. And then along comes this thing. And, the fa- and you know, everybody's like, well, you either love it or you hate it. It doesn't matter whether doesn't people matter. love it or hate it. You know, people are talking about it. And so... Um, well, if I could... Um, I, I don't want to agree with it because it makes for boring radio. But, <laughs> I mean, do you remember... You and I both remember we were around when the first Toyota Prius came out, and that thing, even in 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 hindsight, is hideous. It looks like this little egg, um, but that established a whole new genre of car, and it established your green credibility. And you know there are other hybrids out at the same time, and none of them were anywhere nearly as successful as the Prius because it looked like nothing on the road. So, if that's the the measure of success, then the Cybertruck is a a home run from day one, isn't it? Right. Well, the fact is, is that Hummers and Priuses were bought for exactly the same reason, which is that you wanted to advertise to the world who you are, you yeah. know. And so, uh, and so, it's uh, the Cybertruck is going to be a similar thing. I mean, yes, there is some utility to it, as there was to a Prius and a Hummer, but um, the fact is, is it's a rolling statement, and if you're going to spend that much kind of money on a car, it's you know, hundred thousand dollars for one of these things. Um, you kind of want to make a statement. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, I tell you, there will be a race to be the first one on your block to have one. Now, what happens when everyone on your block has one? Will it sustain? That's a good question. There's lots of forecasts right now about whether this vehicle, which is, is really so styling driven, will sustain because cars that tend to be styling driven tend to age faster than everything else. And um, Okay. What's your crystal you ball you, say? You could also argue that it does actually have real performance. I, I, I'm going to argue that that first, uh, you remember that Prius, it was ugly. They sold what? Quickly, they went up to 150, 200,000 units a year, almost right. half of a Camry. And it stayed there for a long time. Now, you could also argue, well, that was a $25,000 car, not a $100,000 car. So well, and the it, potential it, buyers it, is bigger. You know, the times kind of moved in its direction. I mean, it, it is True. the ideal Uber vehicle. They run and run and run. You know, they've been using them as New York taxis for years. You know, I mean, they, they rock up half a million miles with no problem on ex- existing batteries. So, I mean, they, 
there there's a life there and a market there beyond just um you know your average homeowner saying hey you know it's hot today it's not my fault um I, so it, well i don't i really thought that the cyber truck was going to be the you know the jordash jeans of today forgotten tomorrow until you know you watched it you know we're really grateful we have Camisa on our team because we know his chops, right? We know what he likes. We trust him. We've known him both for decades and we've worked with him for a long time. And so like when somebody's really going to look into a car, if it's you, me, if there's a handful of people that I really trust to give me the straight dope. And Jason is one of them. I don't know. When I saw that video, um, I was, I've been talking to him about it for a couple of weeks now and the little things he's told me here and there, I'm like, wait, what, what did they do? Right. And, you know, the big thing was, I, I'm not sure people realize he, he wasn't able to include this in the video, but the, one of the reasons it's delayed is a couple of years ago, they had a prototype and Elon was driving it around. The prototype was so big. It was sort of like, you know, a full size pickup, which are so big, you can't park them. And he went back and he's like, this is too big. Fix it. And so they had right. to like start from scratch. I mean, it's right. kind of amazing, which was smart, but. Yeah, what is it? Ten 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 percent smaller than the original uh, yeah. concept car. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Jason and when when the video airs, everybody will see you know see it. But um, he's, he, I think his most interesting statement is is that the the styling of the car is actually the least interesting thing about it, and that yep. it's yeah. everything that's under the skin, which is a lot of stuff that most people won't get and won't bother to learn about. But um, if you're in the car industry. And you're not paying attention to this vehicle, then you are absolutely remiss. I mean, you're not doing your job because this thing does have some really interesting tech that, by the way, will go into other vehicles. Uh, yeah. So the the engineering of this thing will absolutely affect vehicles going forward. And so um, it's hugely interesting for those of us who work in the business. Um, and I'm I love it because. I'm one of those people who thinks that design is in desperate need of disruption. And that's exactly what Tesla is, is a disruptor. And just, you know, they took the Silicon Valley model and applied it to the to this very staid, slow-moving industry, the auto industry. And they're actually doing what disruptors have been doing in Silicon Valley for years, which is completely tossing the grenades in. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting, you know, I've been and covering they, And Tesla. they're able to maintain it. They're maintaining it. It's kind of amazing. I don't want to be a fanboy here, but they've done it again. It's amazing. Well, and I've I've been lucky enough, and I, you know, in my, if I look back over my thirty years or so doing this, you know, covering this beat, um, I it's it's you know, Tesla's been just the, the most fascinating thing to watch. Yeah. Um, because if you look at this vehicle versus, say, the Model X, which was really kind of their first. You know, Elon says it's got to be this way, so we got to, you know, we got to put the, go, you know, because he said the that they, he said the same thing about the Model X that he said about that he's saying about the Cybertruck, which is that you know, car companies always produce these really cool concepts, but they never actually build them, and we we get these kind of watered down things, and and we're not going to do that this time. We're going to produce exactly the car we promised, which in the case of the Model X was these gullwing doors and these crazy, you know, moving seats on these pedestals and, and automatic opening doors. And the car nearly sank the company. I mean, it was it really was just a dumb idea. It was a parlor trick that you didn't really need. It didn't add to the function or performance. Right. It was, was crazy engineering yeah. just for engineering's sake. Exactly. Whereas in the case of the Cybertruck, um, this is actually really interesting, useful, practical engineering. And I think uh, that shows how the company has matured. Um, these guys well, are serious. You know, I we really 
you know, I was in that factory. I was in Fremont when it was just an empty hall, you know, before they that were was making cars. What did Toyota built there? They built the, um, it was the last, the Matrix and Vibe, right? That's what was built there. Before. And the Tacoma. It was New oh, United Motor Manufacturing uh, Incorporated, NUMI. That was the, the, the nickname for the plant. And uh, that was a GM. Originally was Chevy. It was a GM Toyota joint venture plant. And um, by the way, can I just cut in? There was a great book that our friend John Kraftcheck worked on. And that was called The Machine That Changed the World, which was basically where General Motors partnered with Toyota to try and learn Toyota's uh, production method. Like this was a very open thing that Toyota did. They showed them everything. And then according to the book, all the GM people that learn went back into GM and they split them everywhere and had no power and they couldn't make any changes. <laughs> okay, I totally derailed us there, but I love that story. That's a fascinating story. Well, the time has moved on and GM but that was, was that not, plant, not the company right? it was then. But yeah, Newbie yeah. was really the, that's where the, the two worlds met. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's this enormous sprawling plant mm -hmm. and, and, and Tesla was just rattling around in one little corner of it uh, when they got started. And now to see where they are with, you know, the best selling car in the world, uh, the Model Y. And um, it's, it's just astounding. I mean, it was really nobody... I mean, there were very few people putting odds down that they were going to make it this far. Um, well, you know, I, I do feel like a me. I don't need. I don't have to say a mea culpa because I remember in the beginning um, when when Tesla was making the Roadster and they were claiming all these things and all the big three and the established auto execs were saying this is a fly in the in the wall. It's going to die. And I believed it, and then once SpaceX started doing what SpaceX was doing, that's when I was like, okay. I'm not going to doubt anymore. Right. The engineering, I don't think it's the engineering chops. I mean, I think their people are smart, but I mean, you and I meet people in the big three all the time. They're brilliant. There's something about the organization and there's something about, you know, Elon saying right up front, like, it's kind of like we say, we're like, if you, you have to love the game, the job to be here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, as if you don't love producing content, you really don't, shouldn't be in the media business. And I feel well, like they hired engineers that love to create and make. Well, two things happen. First of all, Tesla shows how the ranks of the traditional auto industry are full of disaffected, dissatisfied, bored, yeah. um, you know, people who are just toiling under this terrible bureaucracy. The ideas get watered down. Um, you know, <laughs> there's plenty of smart people working in the auto industry oh, who amazing. had no, no place to go until yeah. Tesla came along and said, hey, we're going to take all your fresh thinking and you're going to get to run with it. Um, the other thing that happened was that Tesla made all those people very rich because they got Tesla stock, which then went ballistic. And so if you were a mid-level engineer at a car company, the only way for you to make a lot of money was to go leave your engineering job, go get an MBA, and then come back and shoot mm. for the C-suite and be yeah, one, yeah, of these, yeah. one of these guys or gals trying to climb the greasy pole to the C-suite. And... and Tesla gave them another uh, another way to get actually some serious money while still doing their engineering job, which is frankly amazing because the problem with the, the old-fashioned car industry is that they the only way to get promoted is to leave engineering and go into business. And yeah, so yeah. We lost all, all, the, all the execs come from the finance department. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so what you end up with is a C-suite full of guys who maybe they weren't that great at engineering, but they went back and got their MBAs and they were really good at climbing the pole, really. And, and 
you know, <laughs> when, you know, and, and in the meantime, and everybody else was kind of disgruntled and complaining about how their life sucked. Yeah. Because, you know, Joe, the guy who was the mediocre engineer, he just went off and now he's a manager and he's telling us what to do. And he was never that good of an engineer anyway, but he got his <laughs> MBA from Wharton or Michigan or wherever he went. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so there, there's a, there was a real dysfunction in the engineering organizations, uh, the big three especially. Um, and Did Tesla you- came along and said, hey, listen, just come here and be really good engineers. And oh, we're going to give you all the stock and it's a gamble. And we'll see what happens. And all those people got a lot of money. And now they have spread out and gone out to other EV startups. So, yeah, I, it's a great point. Did I ever tell you the story? Like when I first started a car and driver in like the mid 90s, and I, my first trip to General Motors Milford Proving Grounds, did I ever tell you about this? When, no. when one of the engineers there, okay, you remember at the time, right? The, the German cars and the Japanese cars, you drive them and they felt like, wow, this is incredible. And then what's GM making? Bonnevilles. You know, Ford is still hanging on to the Taurus. The Explorer, I know it was a sales success, but just had no passion in it. You could just tell. So I go to the GM Proving Grounds and I'm not the smartest at, by, at anything, but I was like, I was floored with the engineers I met there. These guys knew everything. And I remember they had, they were showing me this rig where they put the cars on, they'd measure all the suspension and the deflection and the different speeds and blah, blah. And so I said, hey, well, can you just tell me why the three series BMW feels so good? Oh yeah, yeah. You know what that is? That's because the stiffness where the suspension attaches to the frame is so great and it doesn't deflect under turning. So you get a perfect linear response when you turn the wheel, blah, 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 blah. I was like, holy shit. And I go back to, I think it was, you know, we worked with Frank Marcus. He's over at Motor Trend. I said, Frank, I don't understand. Like I, I thought these people were really smart. They knew cars. They knew what they were doing. But why are the, why aren't the cars better? And he just laughed. He goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That place is the world's like real life Dilbert cartoon." Right, right. It's where good ideas go to die. And yeah, you know, I, I'm exactly the same way. Whenever I meet uh, engineers who work for the big three, I'm always oh, hugely Ford. impressed. And Absolutely. and they always have the best. I mean. In my experience, it's 30 years on the beat. They always have the best intent. I mean, when you talk to them and said, yeah, why did the best you do intentions. this? Well, here's here's why we had did it, and then here's why mm-hmm. we had to adjust it. And you know, and you know, the the, the, the drivers are going to be doing this, and and it's always yeah. like they've thought this stuff out so well. And That's I have amazing. to say, like, I'm a huge fan of General Motors right now. I mean, I think they understood electric vehicles before <clears throat> any other major automaker. I mean, you know, they oh, other than other you, than Tesla, you mean? Yeah, and I say that as the owner of a Chevy Bolt, which I think is is the best electric car for the money on the market. Uh, well, it was on the market before they stopped making it. Um, it just but costs you too much when money. you when you drive one versus a Mercedes EQS or mm. any of the latest electric yeah, yeah, yeah. vehicles, you see how for twenty eight thousand dollars or whatever, the Bolt delivers a, a, an electric driving experience. They understood that driving an electric car is different from driving an IC car. For sure. Before anybody did. And and so, you know, I think the company is really, I, you know, I am thinking about buying another Chevy product. I mean, I think they're, you know, when I look out av- over the field, I mean, I, I'm really hot on General Motors right now. But anyway, that aside, it's partly because I can't afford a Tesla. <laughs> and, well, I, I tell you what, let's get back to Tesla. All the points I, you make about General Motors today being vastly different than the one I walked in in 1995. 100%. Totally. I couldn't agree with you. But some of the innovations that you mentioned of the Cybertruck that are going to trickle to the other ones, um, you know, the first that, that uh, is the new battery cells, right? 
they're much bigger. And instead of like, you know, in the beginning when, when Tesla was buying, you know, thousands of thousands of cells, wiring them all together to make this big battery pack. Now they're making their own cells and it does right. look like a, maybe a two X D cell battery. Right. And they're making it themselves. It's much cheaper and the energy density is higher. I mean, the, um, you know, we're, we're often told that the, the battery improvements are over. Now it's just about lowering the cost, but they proved that wrong because they improved the density and they lowered the cost. And that's going to be a big deal, I think, because that's really the, the big thing holding back EVs, right? It's the cost. Well, we've seen this kind of vertical integration before, and it was right at the start of the auto industry with the Model T. And yeah. the problem with the Model T, which is the same problem that Tesla may run into, which is that when you vertically integrate and you own everything, when the change comes, then yeah, it's real, your, your costs for changing everything are enormous. You know, it's not like Tesla goes, all right, we're going to get a different supplier because solid state batteries are now the thing. And, you know, these lithium ion cells are out, uh, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's a risk and we don't know it's going to benefit Tesla now. Will it benefit Tesla in 20 years? We don't know. Well, and, it, it, you know, Ford nearly died because of its vertical integration and they're unwilling to change the Model T. Um, so, well, can I explain what do you mean by vertical integration? Ford is the, is the poster child because they had this big factory on the Detroit river called the Rouge, right? And what came in on one end, it's rubber taconite, which is basically iron ore, limestone, you know, whatever. Horse hair, you name yeah, it. Yeah, all the, all the raw material. And then at the other end, out popped a car. And so they right. controlled every bit of that production. And then, like you said, that went away. And because you, you, if you're captive to your, your in-house supplier, maybe you miss some of the innovations or cost savings that are done outside of your company. I mean, that's the basic premise. And I'm watching this going sideways, right? It went totally uh, supplier only. And now we're swiftly switching back to vertically integrated, especially when well, it comes to batteries. Well, are we or aren't we? I mean, it's again, it's a solution that are. applies to everything. I, w I was in the Ducati factory and Ducati literally makes nothing. They make no part of their own motorcycle. Everything is yeah, supplied. Yeah, yeah, for a niche thing. They do one machining job and they assemble. That's all they do on their motorcycle. Niche product. So, niche product. Well, who can argue that a Tesla isn't a niche product? I mean, I guess it's you know some of their models are mainstream, but but the fact is is that Tesla is building it itself up into what kind of the Model T was, which is this enormous vertically integrated behemoth. I mean, Tesla makes their own plastic bumpers. I, you know, that's crazy I, in this listen, day and age. <laughs> I, I think we're in vehement agreement. I think it's going to work for them for a while, for the reasons that we mentioned that they're able to attract the best engineers and organize them in the way and really. Uh, cultivate the best ideas and creativity. That will not last forever. And But I think that's going to be a ways off because they have such a head start on everybody else that I think the Cybertruck, it just increased that lead, in my view. I mean, the other right. thing is, okay, the battery cells we can't talk much about only because it's really hard to describe chemistry inside a battery. But the big thing is something you and I have written about, I guess probably 10 times each, and that was that the cars are going to switch to an architecture, an electrical architecture that goes from 12 volts to 48 volts. And it's never happened. There's a lot of advantages, a lot of efficiencies to it. But then with this Cybertruck, Tesla went ahead and said, okay, sorry, we're just going to make a 48-volt architecture. And they did. I was pretty amazed by that. Did you agree? 
Well, you know, I listen, I've been covering that whole debate exactly. between 12 volts and 36 volts, you know, or 14 volts and 48 volts for, for a long time. Um, and by the way, the difference between the two voltages, depending on whether you're talking about static voltage at the battery or, or dynamic voltage when the vehicle's running, if you put your electrical tester on your alternator, it doesn't say, well, while your engine's running, it doesn't say 12 volts. It says 14.7 volts typically. Right. And that's where this whole 48 thing comes from. It's still a tripling of the voltage, the common voltage in cars today. And the Germans, by the way, have been pushing 48 volt mm -hmm. systems yeah. for, for decades. I mean, and you know, I talked to a guy at General Motors this years ago, but he said they 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 knew that there was a lot of talk about 48 volts. So they went and built three prototype cars with 48 volt architectures. And what they realized was that the cost um, versus the benefit of doing it was so high because Yes, certain things in the car wanted 48 volts, like, you know, the electric car steering system that Jason mentions in the video on the Cybertruck, and there are certain big draw items Window in the motors. car yeah, yeah. That, that benefit. But there are also a lot of small draw things, like the electronics only want to see 4 volts or something, you know, and at the time, headlights were still incandescent, and those, you know, in order to make a 48-volt incandescent headlight, you had to have a filament this long, which was really quite fragile and you know you really couldn't put it in a dynamic thing like a car so you ended up having to step down all those voltages with with um, transformers, uh, transformers yeah. and all of that added cost and weight sure. and it just didn't make any sense well of course time has moved on and we now have LEDs and but, but LEDs in car electronics all this, all those screens everything those don't want 48 volts those really want relatively small voltages so you're still doing step down of the voltage for a lot of the function in the car, so you're adding cost and weight. Um, so yeah, but here, here's what if I could if I could you, know, you bring up a good point, right? The 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 main benefit you need I don't know what is it 200 watts at your electric motor in the door, and 48 volt allows you to run a much thinner wire but get that same energy to that motor, right? So there's savings there. Now you bring up there's these other things that need very little voltage because they're all using LED lights. I get it. But the voltage is so low, you can have one transformer feeding all of those things. So it's not like every little thing, because you're not running a lot of wire, or you're not running a thick wire. So right. I get what you're saying, that everything has trade-offs, but I just think in the realm of like, once you have 48 volts, you know, you know as well as I do, these electric cars need electrically, uh, not engine-driven compressors and heaters and all these things to keep the car comfortable that benefit from a higher voltage, right? Right. I mean, you know, all I'm saying is that when you when you have when you change the voltage and also when you have a vehicle with two voltages, which which the Cybertruck has, it's got an 800 volt battery and it's sure. got a 48 volt electrical system. Anytime you have multiple voltages in any car, there's a lot of engineering that goes into keeping those systems separate. And, Understood. And, yep. And 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 making sure the right and and by the way, the the Cybertruck actually has multiple voltages because again, it's got electronics in the cockpit that don't want 48 volts. They want about six volts or four volts or whatever it is. So it it really is quite a difficult engineering challenge to to separate all those voltages. And now you've got to go to the battery industry, which is, you know, quite well set up in making, you know, 12 volt batteries go, hey, by the way, we need a new battery. Oh, okay. And, you know, th and that battery is quite heavy and it's going to be expensive. And so I mean, you just wire them in parallel, right? Parallel or series increases the volt to something. You know what I mean? Just wire the batteries. Same batteries, just wire them different. 
Okay, so now your electric vehicle has three, the equivalent of three car batteries. Well, has I, anybody I here lifted a car battery out of a car lately? Listen, They're freaking heavy. I'm, I am reasonably sure they had very good first principle reasons to go to 48 volts. Can we just agree on that, maybe? Uh, yeah, all I'm saying is like uh, in Jason's video, and there will be a lot of talk about, oh, you know, Tesla went ahead and did 48 volts, and the rest of the industry couldn't figure it out. The rest of the industry knew exactly how to do oh, 48 yeah. volts. They just decided if you're going to sell a $25,000 Toyota Corolla, it didn't make sense. Got you know, it. it was just going to add so much I cost agree. and weight to the car, it didn't make sense. So, But for the industry to move away from 12 volts, I mean, one of the risks was always, right, when you and I work on cars all the time, and, you know, you do get zapped by the battery. Every once in a while, you touch a ground and you get the little the buzz. And at 12 volts, it's not really that bad. Never. So you don't really worry about it. Now, do you worry at 48? It's a good question. Well, I don't know the, the answer. And you raise another point that was raised 30 years ago when they first Same, started talking yeah. about this is that the inter I think the international standard is 60 volts to stop a human heart. So anything oh, wow. that six, six, 60 volts can actually stop a human heart. So anything... Yeah. Anywhere near that or above that now requires an extra set of precautions. And, and you'll notice if you lift the hood of a hybrid or an electric vehicle, there's these yeah. big orange cables because that's part of the labeling. You know, part of the process of doing higher voltage is you got to label everything quite clearly and your connectors have to be completely different because you're pushing so much more voltage through. Um, the other problem you run into is the higher the voltage, the greater the corrosion between the connectors. And so it's, uh, there's just enormous engineering challenges. It's just not as simple as, Hey, we're going to crank up the voltage. Okay. I, great, I, you know. I, I, I totally agree, but they've, they, they, they found reasons to do it. I mean, I think before we leave the cyber truck, the two big innovations that I was most impressed with, I mean, Jason is very clear to say like this drive by wire steering. You know, he says, like, okay, I wouldn't want it my sports car, which means there's not a lot of feel in it, but they can fix that. I mean, you know how many people are driving Sims everywhere and they, they totally get it. But the way that they can vary the ratio between what you turn the steering wheel and what the wheels do to actually turn the car, I thought was really cool. Yeah. And I loved how he was like, you know, it feels weird, but then somehow your brain gets used to it. And, you know, when you're doing this fast, when you're going 90 and you go this way, it does this. But when you're going, 10 and do this it does that i thought i can't wait to drive it i mean i just thought that was really cool and the second thing was the skin you know you have this skin where you know he's got randy that walks up with a sledgehammer we you know they're saying it's bulletproof i mean who knows but it's it's way stronger than anything else out there at the moment so let's agree on that and that it didn't mean the car has to weigh you know, 28,000 pounds, which is usually the way you make something bulletproof. You just put basically concrete in the door. So I, I'm just impressed with those two things alone, let alone all the other stuff we talked about. You know what I mean? Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens when some of these depleted uranium bullets go through, you know, storefronts and, <laughs> and hit other cars and stuff. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, even Jason acknowledges he wouldn't want to be hit as a pedestrian by one. Um, no, it'll no, never no. pass European uh, pedestrian impact laws. And, and, you know, we say, well, that's in Europe, who cares? But actually, pedestrian fatalities are a huge problem in Los Angeles and growing. Um, and yeah. so it's, it is a thing. I mean, you are driving around in a fortress. And so uh, while it's cool and it makes for cool video, there is always negative. Uh, <laughs> there are always downsides. Yeah, and there's always a trade-off. Like nothing's perfect. But, you know, it's, it's 2,500 pounds lighter than the Hummer. 
I mean, that that's is, not really saying much. I know. know. I mean, the hover still. is ridiculous. It is a little bit ridiculous, but um, and it's it's old technology already, and uh, you know, I mean, all right, all right. I'm just saying, I I, I think it's uh, I am feeling better. Uh, I'm I'm celebrating this Cybertruck, and I did not think I would be. I thought it was just going to be a plaything for the tech bros who want to advertise their wealth. And it is much more than that. And I'm, I'm just super geeked about that. Yeah. My attitude is anything that enriches the automotive landscape is good, is a and pure it, good. And that. this is doing that in spades. Right. And so, and you know, I hope it encourages other car companies to be, you know, adventuresome in their styling. Uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. That thing just looks dumb. It just does. It's the worst part about it. But, you know, I hear what you're saying about you got to have new things. That's different for the sake of being different, which I don't know. I, I, I get it. You got to move. Well, let's move on because I want to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And it's a problem topic. And uh, it's the lack of, of people to fix and maintain and restore our cars. And this uh, auto service instructor in Texas has come up with something really, I just thought interesting as a way to motivate students. He's in uh, DeCaney High School in Texas. His name is Dave Almanzen. And he found a, um, a 1985 Mercedes-Benz 300D diesel sedan, and he bought it. And he went to his students said, Hey, what do you guys want to do with it? And they really got behind this idea of turning it into like, I guess, a, an off-road with big wheels and tires. And so he got everybody involved and then he entered into this Hot Wheels competition and the car was actually selected and Hot Wheels is making a uh, a model of it. I just thought, you know, Aaron, we, we talk about that there's no technicians, right? Tech Force says there's going to be a shortage of 400,000 technicians in the next year. I mean, this is the way I think you really fix it. You show how cool this stuff could be and you really, you know, provide an arm ramp for everybody to be involved. But it's much different than the sort of auto service instruction that you and I have seen. I mean, have you ever done any of it like I have or just you well, self-taught? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm self-taught because when I went to high school, you know, uh, the kids who were in track. our shop were like, you smoking cigarettes down there in the hallway. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, the, the, <laughs> you know, respectable kids didn't do auto shop, which is oh, I know, which, which is what has decimated the auto shop system in public education. Because yeah, I, I I spent actually a fair amount of time. I did a number of stories about a guy here in Los Angeles, uh, an auto shop teacher who's desperately trying to save his auto shop. You know, there's a, something like 130 high schools in the LA Unified School District, and they all used to have. Right. Multiple, multiple industrial art shops, not just auto shop, but they had electrical shop. They had, some of them had textile shops and yep. woodworking shops. I mean, high school used to be about preparing kids for life. And then um, in, in whatever various forms it would take. And, and, and there, there came to be a thinking in, in public education that, and, he, and he, he put it best, he's like the attitude among um, um, the, you know, the people who run school districts was, why should we train kids to be grease monkeys? It was all about test scores and getting kids into college. You were either going to college or you were going to the military or you're going to work in a fast food joint. I mean, those were the three options that public education gave it's their so kids. Criminal. It's terrible. It's, it's horrendous. And even in Let's our modern- sign them up for a lifetime of debt. Sign them up yeah. for a lifetime of debt. How about that? But there are kids who really have no business going to college because they actually like working with their hands or, you know, they 
they just, you know, an academic life is not for them, but our public education system is now funneling everyone into college and it's all about these test scores. And for a lot of these kids, they just, there's nothing for them. And this guy at this, at Carson high school over here, uh, near me, he was trying to give, he said, listen, I'm just doing this to try and give these kids some, something to look forward to during the day. One thing out of the whole day that they can look forward to. And that was being in the shop and working with their hands on stuff. And so unfortunately that is just a mindset that has taken over education and these shops have gone away as budgets have been cut i mean the shops have been the first ones to go and so uh, we are in a desperate shortage of people who can fix things and we have a complex society with a lot of machines that need fixing and so um, yeah i guess i've been thinking about for a long time when i first uh, you know because i was one of those kids same as you good in math i loved cars i was you know, taking apart motorcycles. I was fixing lawnmowers in my garage for the neighbors and making money at it. Couldn't take auto shop. Uh, and then I go to engineering school. I got an engineering school. I hated it. Blah, blah, blah. When I'm 30, I landed at our local community college to learn how to weld. And I got to know that department there. And it was awesome. I mean, I was like, I remember coming home like, these are my people. And we'd be there Friday nights and we're making stuff, we're working on cars. I mean, it was fantastic. And I got to know the instructors and it sounds so easy. Like, okay, there it is. There's all these passionate people. They want to pass it on. They, you know, they find the kids that really want to into it. And I saw this, you know, I used to hire some of their best kids. You know, they, they'd say like, this kid's really smart. He wants to be in cars. Remember, they'd become road warriors or uh, uh, car and drivers. So totally invested in it. Something about these schools and programs, Aaron, and I don't know what, it just, it sends the instructors running from the building, screaming with their hair on fire. I don't know if it's the bureaucracy, if it's the curse of teaching, I don't know what it is, but unfortunately, we all know these people that are very passionate and very capable, but either we're not encouraging them enough, we're not protecting them enough, or something's a little skewy. And I think number one is like this this requirement that they all have to have master's degrees to teach how to work on cars. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. I mean, there's, you know, I've long said that, that, that all education in the United States is run entirely for the benefit of the adults, not for the actual kids, you know, and the, I and mean, the colleges, <laughs> everything. I mean, it's all, yeah. all this, all school administration is, is beset with adults problems, adults worrying about themselves. And it's yeah. never about what is best for kids. And, um, unfortunately, you know, the, the kids who want to do industrial arts, uh, they're suffering along with everyone else because, you know, they're, nobody's giving them a pathway. Well, I shouldn't say nobody because there are places. I mean, we've got a community college here in LA, um, that, that has a huge auto shop program and, you know, there's, there's a crying need and they keep telling, you know, these kids, Hey, listen, if you finish this program, you can write your own ticket. You can go to any dealership in any United States and become a master tech and you're going to make over a hundred grand. Um, so, uh, you know, there's this, and, and in the aerospace industry here, I mean, companies like SpaceX, you know, they're dying for technicians because they have to assemble, you know, quite complex machines and they need people who can do it. And so there's an enormous demand, um, I, but there's a disconnect between what society needs and what the education system is producing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm seeing some positive, encouraging changes, just not enough. And the first one I'll tell you uh, is uh, is UTI, which is a for-profit uh, 
school that teaches mechanics. And, you know, there's different viewpoints on for-profit stuff, but I went and toured the one in Charlotte, North Carolina, the home of NASCAR. And I was super impressed. And the I, I happened to pull aside some manufacturer reps, like Mercedes was there, Porsche was there. I said, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, we need to get first dibs on the highest performing people in this program. We need them. Right. And they were teaching welding. They were teaching everything. And I mean, I was looking around like, God, this would have been awesome. The other thing is you've heard about too, is that Jay Leno was really the, I think the first one to, to kind of really highlight this program in Kansas called McPherson College. Right. The problem there is, and you know, we just did that piece in Hagerty Media about an anonymous donor who I just want to kiss. We gave him a billion dollars to help their endowment. I mean, that school is very careful, not just to educate kids, but also to make sure that they have a fighting chance to succeed by not, you know, burying them in loans. Very reasonable program. But right. a friend of mine went, took his kid there. He said, they only have 50 slots a year, right? which is not a lot for a four-year degree. So, I mean, I just, oh. we just got to take that and we got to multiply it by 400 times. And you yeah. know, you and I are close to retirement, Aaron. I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What I'm going to go, gonna go out and work on my garage, on my cars. <laughs> <laughs> when I retire, <laughs> I've been really thinking about this. Like, how can I, the next stage, like, how can I, because I've been so affected by this shortage, you know, um, you know, I'm in the middle, I'm in, it's going to come on three year anniversary since you and I went to that garage. What was it in Long Beach? Where did we go to that garage? Uh, that three years ago. Yeah. In Long yes. Beach. Long Beach. To buy your, buy your Ferrazzi. Right. And I, I handed over $25,000 for a Ferrari that had been sitting in the garage for 20 years. And I, I did that because you, Aaron, said, yeah, this is a good car. You should do this. I mean, so. <laughs> oh, you blame me. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> but it, it's, it's been three years because, you know, it, needs a, it needed a paint job. And the guy I had doing it passed away. And then I tried to find somebody else to paint it. And this was a year ago, a year ago, this happened. And everybody was like, well, I think I can get you in in 18 months. And this is right. me. I have connections locally. And I was like, wait, what? 18 months? And I finally found uh, a guy who's sort of like what I was looking for. He's kind of retired. He does stuff for, on his own for people he knows. And he came over to look at the car and he's like, I only like to do interesting stuff. This sounds great. And I, my friend who was there with me reminded me that I said to him, I don't want to be in body shop jail. Right. And the guy said, yeah, no, no, no problem. No problem. No problem. I dropped it off in March. His shop burns oh. <laughs> three months turns into, uh, when was it? Like, I think he thinks it'll get painted next week. I mean, I think uh, this is you, been... Larry, this is your, you're, you've got a black cloud over you. It's... I do have a black cloud. There's something wrong here. But I asked people, I've asked around, and they're all saying the same thing, where it's really hard to find people to do this kind of work. So, Well, I don't know. you know, I, I will pull back a little bit and say, listen, um, this is a problem when you have an aging nation and one that's committed to not allowing uh, immigration. Um, because if you go around Los Angeles, the guys painting the, painting the cars weren't born in Los Angeles it's a hard job. Yeah. and, and, and they come from societies where everybody's still making stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you go down South of the border and you need to get something fixed, if you go down the street and there's a guy with a welding shop and the guy next to him is a machine shop and they still know how to fix stuff because they can't just go out and buy new things. And, and they want to come here to work. 
and we are not letting them. And so, you know, we are somewhat suffering from our own uh, unwillingness to recognize that the society needs younger people and people who are, you know, willing to work with their hands. And those people want to come here and we are calling them, you know, criminals and, you know, well, rapists look, and everything. And we need them because it's our not one or the aging. other. It's both. <laughs> I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. I really do. Both what? All the above. I mean, get in the right people, but also give so many kids and students that opportunity to hone a craft. I mean, what I hear from, like, I still have friends at, at the community college, and I asked, I was joking the other day, I said, like, he's been doing it for 20 years, his body shop guy. I said, okay, the student's getting dumber or smarter? He's dumber. So dumb, you don't even know. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, the moms call me. I was like, say what? So it's like the coddle. I mean, it is, this is a boomer argument. So I hate to say it because I'm not a boomer, but it is this coddling of this generation. And, um, you know, well, it does it's, have it it's the well. it's it's the privilege of old people to always complain about young people and say it is privilege. exactly. And Thank it, you for putting. You know, this this has been going on for centuries. You know, yeah, as long as man has been on this earth, <laughs> they've said, you know, oh, these young kids they don't know how to guy. You know, a guy invented the wheel, and then he's like, yeah, my son, he's, he doesn't know how to use it. And it's like, okay, so <laughs> he'll never you know, understand it. Right, yeah. he'll never get it. Like, <laughs> so um, you know, this is a, this is as old as time. One, older people must recognize in themselves that they are just complaining about young people because they're well, old. That's what know? I was, I mean, that, that's, that brings me back to, I've been asking myself, okay, I don't want to complain about this. What can I do to help? And um, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm open to it. And maybe you'll figure it out because you're so smart. And if you do, <laughs> let me know. And, and you have a golden opportunity because my project is in the, I want to light it on fire stage. Your new project is in the, this is the best thing ever. Why did I wait so long to do this stage? Because it's new. Oh, I'm and not sure. I haven't, I give me an like update that. on your on your latest, please, please. Well, uh, a friend of ours who writes for this magazine, uh, Lynn Woodward, she was, she's always had a thing for classic Porsches. I have never had a thing for classic Porsches. I mean, they're cool, but I, you know, they're not my thing. Um, I'm typical Gen X. Whatever's popular, I go in the opposite Wait, direction. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! I, I got, I, I, I got to interrupt you right there, because <laughs> you're full of it, right? I, we shared my 911 in California, and you got out of it. You're like, yeah, I see why everybody likes these things. I remember distinctly you saying that. But I didn't say, oh, I've got to have one. You'll know, you'll, you, you, you may or may not remember that. But I did not get out of it. Oh, I got to have one of these things. You know, I, they were great. $20,000 cars, you know, now that they're over a hundred, I mean, I, I completely lose they're interest. Not. If you look at my collection of vehicles, um, I, I like to call my collection uh, of vehicles, the boomer silencers, because <laughs> when somebody comes up to my garage, like my neighbors do occasionally, and, and, you know, boomers love to tell people everything about their car, right? You know, everybody's entitled to my opinion, you know, and I hate, you know, I've you the know, boomers plane. Terrible, terrible, you know, uh, generic, uh, you know, stereotyping and, and I guilt, guilt, guilty. But, but I, in my experience, this happens a lot there. They yeah. want to tell you all about their life's experience and they want to tell you, well, when they look at my weirdo cars, uh, there's silence, which I kind of like. And, and when I brought this Porsche 9 to, so. Wait, wait, I, can I explain to the audience why your, your fleet of cars is so oddly old that it's expected that you're much older than you are. 
So there's a <laughs> disconnect between they see the cars and you're like, wait a second, this guy's hair isn't all gray and falling out. Very strange. What's yeah, happening? Yeah, well, here? so I compute. mean, I I have a couple pre-war cars. I have an old Lamborghini Spada. I have you know weird weird cars that that you know that people don't know much about, which is fine. I like it that way. Well, so our this friend of ours lived in Woodward, wanted to own a classic Porsche, and we found this thing, uh, a Porsche 67 Porsche 912 that hadn't run in almost 10 years up in a field in Silmar, California, which is way up in the North Valley. And um, she went and looked at it, and it looked pretty solid, even though it hadn't run. And, you know, finding a car that isn't rusty is the real challenge. And so uh, we bought this thing and dragged it out of the field, along with about 3 million Black Widow, Brown Widow, Wolf Spiders. Oh, that, wow. That rode down the freeway in the, on, the, on the flatbed in into my garage. And then that night, like commandos dropped out of the car and went into my garage. But uh, anyway... Um, this has been a very steep learning curve for me because I, I really know nothing about these cars. I mean, I literally know nothing about them. I was looking right at the rocker cover of the engine, not understand. I thought it was a heater box or something. I mean, I really know nothing about them. So, um, please call I, me. I, I mean, I, I went through exactly what you're going through six years ago, totally disassembled the 69 911. You know my story. So, I get yeah. it. So, and, and two of our friends, James Lipman, who does a lot of photography for our magazine, and Logan uh -huh. Culkins, who works for Haggerty, they both have 912s. And so we've been all on this group chat talking about stuff. And, and you know, I have all these questions. And, um, you know, whenever I see something I don't understand, I just snap a photo of it and send it, you know, to one of them and go, what is this? And, you know, can I fix it in, while the engine is still in? Every question, by the way, about a old Porsche 911 912 is, can you do this with the engine in or out? Because, um, the engine is so ridiculously easy to remove on this car. It's four bolts and it's on the ground. And so, um, hold you it, know, hold it, hold it. <laughs> well, hold maybe it. I should say, and it's true of a 912. I just did this and there's a reel on my Instagram because I dropped the motor out of my 911. Yes, there's four bolts that hold it, but you got to take the axles off. Oh, you got to take five minutes. Okay, you're better. You're, you're faster than I am. It took a while. I mean, now, but, now, granted, I have yet to do this, but but Logan, my my expert on Porsche 912, tells me because I was telling him I was in the first day we had it. I I was like, oh, let me pull a spark plug and see how the spark plugs look. So I go through the air <laughs> box the that the spark plug is in, you know, and I'm like feeling around with my th finger, my pinky, no, trying to find me. the end of the spark plug. Then I put the thing on and I undo the spark plug, and then I hear the spark plug rattle down. I'm like. Where did the spark plug go? It's down in this hole inside this yeah. air box. Oh, shit. So I'm like feeling around trying to get, I use a magnet to try and, but, you know, this is day one of Porsche ownership. So I was talking, I was telling this whole story to Logan. He goes, Aaron, it's really a toss up whether it's easier to pull the spark plugs from the top of the engine through the engine hatch or just drop the engine. <laughs> like, oh, it's, okay. He's it like, is. It's like, I can literally have my engine out of my car in an hour. I don't know by like, myself. if I were you and I'm going to recommend it because I did literally, I just dropped the motor, go to my Instagram, you'll watch it. If you want to learn anything, Aaron, I'm going to teach you. It's so, <laughs> it is, as long as you, you like, you build a platform with wheels so you can move yes. the thing around. And the other thing that um, you just remember, you don't have to take transmission off first. Like the engine, well, at right. least the 911 engine's heavy enough that even if the transmission's sticking out in front, it doesn't tip it over. Right, and and that apparently is true. Of the nine and the nine twelve is two hundred pounds lighter than the nine eleven, and at least some of that is engine. And um, yeah. it it's it, it the car is compared to what I'm used to. The car is ridiculously so simple. Sim simple. Um, 
And we've got a little bit of corrosion. There's the typical below the battery box in the left front corner. It's the, the metal has split because, you know, acid yeah. over the years drains out and eats the metal there. And that, unfortunately, is right where the, that left A-arm, lower A-arm connects to the body. So that, oh, right. that, whole, yeah. that whole stamping uh, has to be replaced. And, um, All doable. And, I'm, yeah. Tons yeah. of shops do it around you. And there's a little bit of surface rust here and there, and the, the the paint. It's not the original paint. It was originally red, and now it's kind of silver with this really, you know, faded out clear coat because it's been sitting on the sun for years. And uh, some restoration work was done to it. It's got a new dash pad um, and oh, some other nice. stuff. But it's, you know, so the one thing that has been really amazing for me is that. There are like 5,800 numbers you can call, and every single part is made for this car. And, yep. you know, I'm used to, with my cars, like you call Bill in Arizona, and Bill either has the part or he doesn't. And if he doesn't have the part, then you have to try and get it out of Europe. And Europe might have it. They might want to be willing to talk to you. Their part might be $1,000. I mean, you just don't. And then so, you buy it, and you wait six months for it to arrive. Right. And Pelican Parts, which is one of the largest yeah. vintage Porsche they're a mile from my house. I can literally walk to Pelican and get a new Gold. gas tank for a Porsche 912. And so, um, so this, you know. Yeah, the, the thing that you're going to fight is, especially where you are in L.A., thanks to these resto mods and the Singer eyes and all this stuff, the fetishing of uh, Porsches sometimes drives up the work. And I remember way back when I started club racing, I had a CRX and I went to the shop to install. I was going to weld in the cage and it was you know, all the money in the world to me, it was like 2000 bucks. And he has a 911 over there and it's, he's got a cage going in there and it had a few more bars. And I just looked and I was like, Oh, interesting. It's got some more bars. How much does this cost? He's like 7,500. I was like, Whoa, Whoa, what, what am I missing here? He goes, Honda, Porsche. And, um, you run into that when people are working on these cars, especially I'm, I'm hearing your rust repair. You know enough people through Logan and Lipman and stuff that you, you'll just get the hourly rate, but that that is the risk with these cars, I think. But on the flip side, I don't know if you saw it, bring a trailer, just a really nice air-cooled custom car. It was like a 72. Looked like it was really well done, totally well done, just sold for like 75 grand. A lot of money but much more reasonable than it was a few years ago. Yeah, it's no question the prices are softening. And, and we actually bought the car. The guy who we bought the car from and only owned it for a year and a half, he was planning to use it as a store fixture. He's got this automotive-themed clothing store up in Thousand Oaks, and he was going to park it in wow. the store. And he decided he needed the money more than he needed the car. And he, he actually sold it to us for less than he had paid for it yeah. and as a non-runner without having done anything to it except park it in a field for a year and a half. So... Um, so yeah, it does seem like the prices are softening a They're bit. reasonable again, yeah. And it's honestly how it should be. I mean, there were a lot of these made, and it's not like they're um, hard to come by, or and they're relatively cheap to keep running. I think, and you know, they're simple cars, and so they're durable. I mean, the thing that amazes me about mine is there's so much of it. You know, like especially you know you, you two things. You know, I call it a fancy beetle. Because if you've ever taken apart a Beetle, the 911 is like, it's a Beetle. I mean, there is right. no question. The thing's a Beetle. But then there's so much of this stuff where you're thinking it's German engineering, it's precision, where it's like this really flimsy sheet metal. Right. And you're just sort of bending it to fit or to line up, which that surprised me. But in all the cars I've had that are built in the late 60s, early 70s, there's n I've never driven one that feels so durable. I can drive it like I want to drive it really hard. 
acting doesn't seem to care just runs and runs and runs i mean so that there is a reason that everybody likes them because they're so freaking usable i mean i love the thing well another learning thing about this car is that i found it to be extremely difficult to jack and, and we and i have like a scissor it's a ben pack scissor lift and it's got yeah. four four arms on it so it jacks at like a side post lift but the engineering is so elegant. I mean, in all the cars that I have, it's so obvious where the structure is and where you're supposed to put the jack pad and everything. And in this car, the engineering is so subtle that you're not, you're not really sure where you're supposed to put the jack pads because it's not clear what the load-bearing part of the structure is. I mean, yeah, you can tell where the torsion bars come in the back. Yeah, the torsion you, bars. You put the pad under there, that's where it's going to But in the front, I mean, it's not... You know, it's not obvious. And and I've had to jack and rejack it so many times before I've got it exactly right on the lift where I feel like, okay, it's really, you know, it's, it's on the securest parts. Um, it's it's just been, like Do I said, know my a, trick? a learning curve. I took a hockey puck, cut a groove in it, and I put that on the pinch weld right behind the front tire, and that's yeah. where I jack from. Yeah, and I've I've got I've got rubber pads and and I've actually got wood under it right now and um I, you know but the other thing about that car is that all the neighbors who I have never met before and they've all since that car is coming to my garage they've all stopped by to uh, talk about that car and you know and tell me you know what's wrong with it and one of the neighbors is building a um uh, a kind of a porsche track car with a chevy small block in the back it's like a 72 73 it's, it's there's nothing stock about it he doesn't care it's got flare fenders it's got the cage it's got you know it's, i think he put an ls3 in the back or something it's you know some crazy engine i'm offended and um but he's come down and and, and you know a lot of people are like oh it's a nice you know, I mean, <laughs> oh, you don't even have it. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, I just think that the there's such a fetish with the newer cars and the newer models that there's a classic notion to these old cars. And, um, you know, the safari thing drives me insane, but I don't want to judge anybody's passion. I tell you what, where my head goes, Aaron, I know Lipman's got one of these. You've got one. Logan, I hope in a year I'll come out with mine. Cause I got to get out of Michigan in the winter next year. And then we can go next on year. some drives together. Will you guys let me, you know, crash your party with my far superior six cylinder version? Yes. Go ahead and find all the police for us. <laughs> and, well, I think and, we and covered we'll it all, along. Aaron. I appreciate it. It was a fun discussion. Is there anything else you want to add before we, uh, say sign off? Uh, as always, I mean, there's always excitement in the auto industry. It never stops changing for, for yeah, as, does. as slow and gigantic and, you know, um, seemingly, uh, the behemoth that it is one week to the next it's, it changes. So that's what I love about it. Keeps changing. Lots of fun stuff. And thank goodness we have uh, fun, uh, innovative, creative people like the cyber truck engineers. Uh, but. Anyway, for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you next time on Never Stop Driving.